What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. On this episode, D is for Dr. No again, and we're heading back to Crab Key to explore the hidden secrets of the very first James Bond film, which was released in 1962. My name is Tom Butler, as always, and joining me to take another look at Sean Connery's James Bond film debut is a man who enjoys nothing more than lounging underneath the mango tree. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. (laughs) And... A man with one of the greatest criminal brains in the world. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley. Hello. <laughs> You're not a fan of these intros. <laughs> How much time are you spending on these every week? <laughs> I should spend more time, I think, maybe. And joining us, these uh, three blind mice on the podcast today, is uh, Professor Melanie Williams, who is a professor of film and television studies at the University of East Anglia. Welcome. Hi, Thanks. You're the first academic that we've had on the podcast, Melanie. So, um, oh, right. I'll try not to let the side down. Yes, yes. Um, before we kick off uh, talking to Professor Melanie, we uh, obviously just want to note this is a follow up episode. So, if you want to learn more about the making of Dr. No, make sure you listen to the previous episode. Um, and although No Time to Die is in cinemas now, we did record this episode before the film came out. So, we won't be talking about No Time to Die here, um, at least in any knowledgeable way. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so first of all, thanks thanks for joining us to talk about uh, Dr. No. We, we specifically invited you because we noticed that you have written about um, and uh, is part of your course, possibly, that you, you talk about Joanna Harwood and her contributions to the James Bond films. Um, so yeah, we thought you'd, we'd invite you on, especially at this time, because now obviously No Time to Die is out. And that's the first film, I believe, first Bond film, I believe, with a credited female writer. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it, really, <laughs> between the very first film and, and the, the latest film. Yeah, I, I got interested in Joanna Harwood because um, I was doing a research project on British cinema in the 1960s. And one of the things that I was doing was looking at different roles within production and also thinking about um, the kind of gender politics of who does what job and who gets more kudos um, and who gets credited within that that um, kind of world of film production, focused on the 60s, but at the same time doing that historical research, there were all sorts of 
things that were kind of very contemporary in, in feel as well. And, and one of those was the sort of slightly difficult position that lots of women found themselves in when they wanted to build a career in film. And, and Harwood is a, a really good example of that. So did you discover Bond before uh, find, like, discovering Joanna Harwood? What, what was your, what's your Bond sort of origin? Oh, well, I mean, I, I grew up with the films on television um so they were a kind of regular fixture on the tally growing up so I'm very kind of familiar particularly with the the sort of classic bonds um and um it was interesting to go back to those films that are you know I'm very familiar with through watching them on the tally on bank holidays and so on and to kind of delve under the surface of the the kind of background of of production and find out more about some of the personalities and I think Dr No is really fascinating for that because obviously it's the first ones there's a lot riding on it um the formula isn't set so there's a sense that you know lots of things in what becomes the sort of James Bond film franchise are are there in embryonic form but also that it could have turned out very differently and you can kind of trace all of that in, in that, that first film, I think. So your interest in Joanna Harwood, how did that come about? How did you first start learning about her? I, 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 I'm trying to think where I first came across her name. I was, I was certainly doing a bit of poking around um, in relation to script development um, and script work and it, and it seemed like a really interesting story to tell that, you know, in some ways that we associate the James Bond franchise very much with uh, masculinity, both on the screen with Bond as a sort of icon of 60s masculinity and, and ever since, um, but also in the, in the creation of that franchise, whether it's Ian Fleming or, Harry Saltzman or Cubby Broccoli or the directors involved in bringing Bond to the screen. So when I read some of the interview material with Harwood and she was telling a sort of different story, I suppose, about um, how Bond came to be on the screen. And, and some of what she said sounded um, kind of amazing, you know, that, the concept of the original screenwriters was to send the whole thing up. So rather than to present the story faithfully and to stay as close as possible to Ian Fleming, um, Richard Maybaum, who obviously goes on to become the, the Bond screenwriter, and Wolf Mankiewicz, who's involved in that first draft, their idea is to kind of, they think the whole thing's ridiculous, so I think we'll send it up and we'll turn the character of Dr. No, the supervillain, into a hyper-intelligent um, marmosette monkey. <laughs> yeah, so it's high-concept yeah. stuff. The monkey um, is well-known. I didn't realise it was a marmoset. That's, uh, well, that's news to me. That's, <laughs> I suppose it's, yeah, it depends what, what the best kind of hyper-intelligent monkey casting would be, really. Um, Which, you know, it's just... I mean, obviously, there's a strong element of kind of uh, kind of parody and tongue in cheek in the Bond films, but this this is this is completely off the wall. And that idea, I suppose, that when you're looking at the Bond franchise, you you're 
you've got an idea of where it ends. So the very suave image of initially Sean Connery and the kind of in you know the, the clothes that he wears, the image that he projects, and this idea that it could have gone in a very different direction, and it was really more happy accident that resulted in Doctor No, that then results in a very successful film franchise, and that it could easily, but for a few kind of bad decisions in script development, have gone off in a completely kind of crazed direction that probably wouldn't have resulted in a successful unrunning um, film franchise. So that seemed very interesting to me and also more plausible than some of the stories around the genesis of Bond on screen, where it's, a, you know, it's, it all seems a little convenient, whereas the kind of crazy idea of nobody having a clue what to do and her having to stitch together essentially all these different versions of the script and turn it into something workable because they're about to start filming so they've got to have something so she takes it back to the spec script that she writes initially which is much more faithful to to Fleming's novel um that sounded much more plausible to me than some of the other versions of events that are presented by uh by Terence Young or by Richard Maybaum so um she struck me as one of those and it's quite frequently the place of kind of women within the industry whether they're working as continuity supervisors or um doing script development work it's often it's often uncredited work it's usually very important to the smooth running of a film but it doesn't carry a lot of kudos and she seemed like a perfect example of that really that she has to um really sort of I wouldn't say struggle because she doesn't seem that bothered by all of this you know um but the idea that there's a kind of grab for credit once the things is a success everybody wants to say I was the person that kind of created Bond and she in her own way is saying well actually no it was all a bit more messy than that and a bit more complex and there were lots of silly ideas that that didn't make it past the drawing board yeah it's really interesting I, I think um we're well versed in the various ridiculous ideas that have cropped up over the course of the <laughs> the franchise so I think I think I could say for all of us that we're pretty pleased uh, with the involvement that uh, she made to actually turn the films out <laughs> as they have because it could have been anything, couldn't it? <laughs> that, and, um... and she's and she's responsible for the you know one of the best jokes in the film, which is the stolen Goya portrait mm. of the Duke of Wellington turning up in Doctor No's lair. That's that's her suggestion, and you know that's corroborated by Ken Adam and and Terence Young as well. So it's sometimes very difficult to pinpoint who contributes what to a script when it goes through different drafts and. Some people have input that's credited and some people don't. So it's interesting that that really, that really witty moment in that first film that helps give it a certain tone, I suppose, mm. was her contribution. And in a way, you kind of wonder what she might have gone on to contribute if she'd continued working on the franchise beyond the first couple of films. But, yeah. but we'll yeah. never know. Well, that, that, that scene is one of the, probably one of the wittiest, most, the smarter jokes that sits within any of the Bond films. It's amazing to think it goes back right to the start that, that, that that's existed from. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a fantastic scene. What can you tell us about uh, Joanna's um, aspirations uh, in the film industry before before Doctor No? Because from reading the chapter in your in the book, um, which is probably worth m- mentioning at this point, um, there is a, a fantastic book which um, we're sort of referring to a lot of the research um, for this podcast from, but. Um, yeah, what can you tell us about her aspirations as a filmmaker? Because it, by the looks of it, she had plans to. Um, she really wanted to be a filmmaker, and and this could have been a, a really a big springboard for her. Yeah, yeah. She um she's from County Wicklow in Ireland. She um, gets interested in in kind of directing plays at school and reads an article in a magazine about the filmmaker Jill Craigie who's making documentary films in Britain in the 1940s um, and thinks oh I didn't know women could do that I'd like to do that and she um, applies to and gets a place in uh, IDEC which is the really prestigious Parisian film school I mean this is before film schools were really a thing so there's very few places you can study to become a filmmaker and this is one of them and there are hundreds of applicants for every place but she manages to to get in and and study on this incredibly prestigious course so she comes back to Ireland afterwards with a view to kind of starting uh, a career um, as a scriptwriter. but her her big aspiration is to be a director but she finds that the opportunities are very limited Um, So one of the jobs that she does, and it's often a job that was occupied by women, was continuity supervisor, which I've kind of written about this job before. It's it's one of those jobs that's absolutely essential for making sure everything cuts together. And it's it's really it kind of oils the wheels of film production. It's usually done by women and it doesn't have a massive amount of prestige and it doesn't get paid a lot. But it's absolutely crucial to a film working. So she does that in Ireland for a while and then decides that she wants to kind of move to London because there are more opportunities in the in the British film studios. And she wants to try and uh, press ahead with this move towards becoming a screenwriter and a, and a director. She's also writing um, short stories and articles. And so she's a kind of freelance journalist at this time as well. And one of the things she writes in the late 50s is send-up of James Bond of Casino Royale, this kind of high-stakes poker game in this short story is then revealed to be uh, a game between James Bond when he's a kid and his nanny in the nursery. So it's actually a game of snap. Um, and they're not drinking cocktails, they're drinking like warm milk before bedtime. And it's a really nice little short story. And Ian Fleming wrote to the magazine to say how much he enjoyed it. So she's already kind of engaged with with Bond, all things Bond, and, and sending it up in this little thing she gets published. But also in the late 50s, she ends up working for Harry Saltzman. So she's doing... A kind of secretarial work for him, also working as a, a sort of summarising potential properties, writing spec scripts, and her idea is that one day she'll write a, a script that's so great, they'll let her direct it. But of course, this 
this sadly doesn't come to pass. So she's absolutely indispensable to, to Saltzman at this point when he's uh, just kind of setting up Woodfall at that time. So she's kind of working within that. And then when Saltzman uh, begins work on the James Bond film, she's absolutely there at the beginning and is um, doing crucial work to try and um, get this this franchise off the ground. Um, so that's the the point of entry. Um, and sadly, you know, there's not a lot of... She continues to do some freelance film work. Um, so she she kind of, after she works on Dr. No and From Russia With Love, she's increasingly kind of fed up. She still does a little bit of work for Saltzman, so she helps out with the Ipcrest file, um, uncredited, and allegedly Goldfinger as well, uncredited, kind of helps out doing a bit of script doctoring. But she kind of gets browned off with the whole thing and ends up doing other kinds of work. She works for the Reader's Digest. Um, she also marries the director, René Clément, great French filmmaker. So she kind of goes off in a, a different direction. So her point of connection with film is is quite brief. And I think that that sense of frustration at not being able to get a directing do, um, career off the ground contributes to, to that decision. And I think it's, it's certainly not unique to her. It's the situation that a lot of, uh, a lot of women trying to find their way in the industry found in, in the 1950s, 1960s. But, you know, it's not limited to that period. That's why it's a story that really still feels sadly familiar, I think, that sense of frustration and not being able to fulfil the ambitions and the talent that are obviously there. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, from researching this podcast and, and looking into the Bond films, I, th- I think I was quite amazed to see that, that she's the only fe- credited female screenwriter on the franchise up to um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge on No Time to Die. The only other sort of major female creative I've seen uh, who seems to have had a lot of input is, is, is Dana Broccoli or Dana Broccoli. Um, but that's, that's, that's quite incredible. But from what you're saying, it's not unusual, you think, in the history of cinema that the, like a female creative has found herself sidelined. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think it's, it's certainly, I mean, maybe things are particularly bad with the Bond franchise, but it, it's by no means unique. I think it's one of the things I, I found as well is that it's looking at credits alone will only get you a very sketchy idea of who's actually contributed important work. Um, so there's a whole, there's a whole kind of, and, and there's a, a strong tradition of uh, script development work, women being quite, um, doing quite a lot of that kind of work, but that's often the kind of script work that isn't credited. And Harwood's credit on, from Russia with Love is a funny credit. So it, the main credit is for Richard Maybaum and she gets an adapted by credit, but that's only because her agent kicks up a fuss. So there are all kinds of kind of untold stories, I think, about the genesis of certain screenplays and, and certain films. And 
Um, and there's, there's, there's a lot of gender bias within that and the roles that are seen as appropriate for, for women to do. So they're, they're more than represented in things like uh, costume and hairdressing and continuity supervision. So script supervision, certainly in the UK, is, is very much a sort of female domain. Um, but in others, yeah, cinematography, hardly any women, and that's still a big problem. Editing's a bit better, screenwriting's a bit better, but still in the minority comparatively. So so I'd say the, the Bond franchise is, is fairly typical of that, really. Um, but yeah, it's it's a long gap, isn't it, from... 1962 to to now to have someone who's uh, accredited author or contributor to a screenplay that does feel like a quite an astonishing gap yeah and probably probably more surprising with barbara broccoli being at the helm since the 90s that it's not happened sooner yeah it's it's interesting that isn't it and obviously you know Different, there are different kinds of creative control that are exercised within different roles. So within like film studies, there's a strong tradition of seeing the director as the author of the film, but that doesn't really fit every kind of filmmaking situation. And often the producer is much more important. Um, sometimes the screenwriter is more important than the director in, in kind of, the, the identity of, of the film. So I think Broccoli certainly a really important force in those, the, the group of, you know, more recent Bond films, the way in which the series has, has developed, even though they haven't employed mm. uh, a female screenwriter or a female director. I suppose that will be the next step to see. And certainly with some of the uh, kind of, the ways in which the Marvel films have kind of moved into using more women directors because they've been kind of very aware of the need to do that. It will be interesting to see whether that's the next step for, for the Bond films, but that's in the future. Yeah, I know that when, uh, because um, Barbara Broccoli uh, and uh, Eon produced um, a film very recently off the Bond uh grid um i'm just frantically trying to google what it was called but it was directed that they, they hired their female director for that it was um man frantically googles something a rhythm <laughs> section the rhythm section which was directed by this fantastic director called reed morano who is also came from a cinema- cinematography background so i feel like they are making those steps in the right direction and i just do does feel like it's the logical next step and i think they were talking about um the Night Manager. Who was the director on The Night Manager? That was oh, another name that they bandied oh, about, wasn't it? Susanna. Beer. Beer, wasn't it? Yeah, Susan Beer. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. So it does feel like they are moving in the right direction, but I really think they really need to put their money where their mouth is at this point. Um, and that's definitely something we need to see from the Bond films in the future. I also think it's a really interesting conversation around Joanna and then the credits that they got not just on the films that she worked on, but in all the Bond films, because the writers are obviously so specific about the credits that they get, right? Um, 
and it does it often happen that the, the, the male writers will end up muscling out female writers is that something you've you've researched yourself Melanie I, I think it, it's ostensibly because they're involved in different stages of the scripting process and so you know the the contribution towards the the kind of final script is often the thing that is credited and obviously there are writers guilds that arbitrate in making sure that people get appropriate credit but if you're a a d girl which is one of the industry nicknames for it so involved in script development um that formative work that's often to do with trying to get a project off the ground so before it's greenlit the work that goes into trying to make it a, a viable concern. Some of that is done more, it's done by women as well as men, but because it's seen as kind of developmental work, it might not carry screen credit. So there's all kinds of complexities to this, I think. Um, and there's also that tradition of anonymous script doctors, so people that get paid a lot, um, and part of that is precisely to be secret. So you come in and you you sort things out, but you don't necessarily um, get on screen credit. So famously, Carrie Fisher did a lot of that with Hollywood films. So not films that she's credited for, but she would come in and polish certain scenes. Um, uh, Clement and Lafrené, you know, who wrote Porridge and Whatever Happens to the Likely Lads, are also have this weird parallel career of sorting out things like The Rock and Brookheimers of action films. So um, that whole world of the the dark arts of the script doctor, I think, is is very interesting. You know, you kind of come in and sort things out and then disappear into the shadows. I mean, it's it's kind of the world of the secret agent, but in script writing form. <laughs> So in, in terms of Dr. No, how much of that final film is Joanna Harwood's work? It's Any very difficult knowing? to know. Mm. Yeah. Um, there are different versions of the, the script with different names attached to them. Um, I've been chatting about this to some of my sort of academic chums about archives and different versions of scripts. So the BFI have a number of uh, different iterations of the script. Um, the E.ON archive has one. The Film Finance's uh, Completion Guarantee Company have a version of the script or different versions. And they'll have different names on the front. And sometimes they'll be annotated by particular people so you can kind of work out whose script it might have been. Um, but working out who did what to contribute to that beyond kind of notes and annotations that, that then make it into a subsequent script. So you can kind of see this person suggested this and look, it's in this next version of it. Apart from that, it's very hard to, to work out. I mean, there are different versions of events and they don't, they don't agree with each other. Um, Harwood's version is that there are all these different versions of the script and some of them are crazy and some of them are more sensible, but the whole thing is a bit of a rag bag and a mess and Terence Young doesn't help because he keeps rewriting things. So in the end, she takes all the bits and pieces, but also goes back to the, the first script that she wrote, which is 
very close to, to Fleming's novel because that idea that if you've paid a lot of money for a literary property, well, use that. Don't <laughs> do something yeah. different. And people, there's obviously already a readership for, for Fleming. So if, if people are going to come and see it on the strength of liking Fleming's novels, then don't don't muck about with it too much. You know, try and adapt it sympathetically whilst turning it from a novel into a film. Obviously, you can't be too kind of straight-laced in what you do, but you don't need to take it off in a completely different direction. So I, I think that's certainly what she says that she contributed, that a sense of, no, let's go back to the book, let's try and keep this as close as possible to, to Fleming's conception of, of the character and also, you know, the kind of world that's being presented in, in the novels. It's interesting, actually, because we've re- revisited Doctor No recently watching this and it's never re- I've never really thought about it being a Fleming-esque story. But actually, it's one of the most faithful adaptations of his books, really, when you, when you boil it down. Um, that and, and then from from Russia with Love. Um, but am I right in thinking that she had been tasked with summarising all the books as one of her sort of production duties? Is that is that right? Yeah, what, one of the initial jobs that she has is well they're still working out what might be the best first film to kind of kick off the franchise um and what one they can kind of secure the the funding to be able to to kick things off and then there's obviously the tricky situation with um casino royale and the rights to that not uh being kind of owned by somebody else and certain difficulties around uh, Thunderball as well so there's you know so Dr No is, is felt to be a good starting point although I think Harwood felt that something else might be a better starting point um, but that's what they decided to go for logically it would make sense to start with the Casino Royale but but they couldn't so they had to find some other way to kind of introduce this this character on screen and I think the the E.D. Levy, which was a, a kind of important tax break at the time, if you film in Britain or you film in a, a kind of territory or dominion that kind of enables you to draw on those tax breaks. So I, I think that's that's one of the reasons why the story being set where it is, that's another reason to do it, you know, whereas uh, in Japan for you only live twice that wouldn't have you wouldn't have been able to draw the same kind of tax benefits so that waits till later on um you spoke a little bit earlier about um when she started working on uh from Russia with love that there was a lot more sort of issues around the the crediting in that film um how how was that different than the Dr. No scenario well the the thing that that she says about it is that um Dr. No well, had proved very successful, but the problem was they didn't know why it was successful. So there's an atmosphere of, of kind of febrile panic. You know, you want to try and replicate what looks like a really big success. And, you know, obviously as um, the film is distributed and exhibited, you, you know you've got a hit on your hands, but then you want to make sure that your follow-up 
consolidates that success. Um, and they're not quite sure what it was that people liked about Dr. No. So again, there's this uncertainty about how to approach things um, in terms of tone. So at one point, Harry Saltzman, she says, suggested that they do a scene like in the Marx Brothers where everybody piles into the same room, you know, which I suppose getting the tone right of having a slightly kind of comedic edge to some of the exchanges. So, you know, Sean Connery's kind of repartee and wit and as Bond, that he's not a kind of completely serious character, but making sure that you don't over-egg the comedy. And actually, of the films from Russia with Love is a bit more dour and kind of miserable, I suppose. Um, and its scenario is is slightly different. Um, from some of the later Bond films. So there's still very much a sense of a franchise in in development, working out where we go next with this. Um, and it is all it's all a bit of a mess again. Um, but well, I'm, you I'm do... really glad <laughs> they didn't go for that lift scene in From yeah. Mystery of Love. <laughs> I think it would have um, been a little bit out of place, but yeah. it's it's a very telling little anecdote really that, suggest something of you know that famous industry maxim which is that nobody knows anything you know they've they've managed to make a hit film and it should be that should mean you've got a track record to build upon but still everybody's a little bit like but what was it people liked about dr no can we do more of that and make sure that we can have another hit and another hit so it's still it's still kind of got the stabilizers on i think at that stage the the Bond franchise it's really only sort of with Goldfinger that it really completely works out what it's doing and but by then um Harwood's less involved yeah we, we often talk about how in those early films they're kind of sort of finding their feet but I always find it very difficult to view films like Dr. No and From Russia with Love as being almost like they didn't know what was working because they are such fantastic films so to imagine that nobody knew what was going on and what, why people like them is an amazing concept. But I think it's interesting yeah. that it's it's reflected later on when Roger Moore comes in, in that in his first two films, it, they very much struggled to figure out what it was that was working for the Bond film. So for Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun, they're very uncertain in tone and arguably even with Diamonds Are Forever as well, that film is uh, is a film that's really reaching to be Goldfinger, but misses by a long shot so i think it's really interesting that it's not until later on and arguably you know they still struggle after that but from spy who loved me is where they find roger moore's formula and they follow follow that uh and they keep doing it um and 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 again interesting you said about harry and his in his crazy ideas but harry's the one also that had the idea of the elephant chase um that they, he was kept trying to shoehorn into uh into future movies um, do you think this is his background in like circus management that he's God. always trying to like <laughs> sounds like it, yeah. get elephants and monkeys on the scene? Although he he t- he he and Cubby Broccoli take umbrage at the the monkey concept for Doctor No. So Thank he, he knew when not to use a, a kind of trained wild animal. Um, well, they used them quite a bit for uh, Call Me Buana, didn't they? <laughs> yes, there's a lot a lot of monkeys in that. So I mean, maybe, maybe yeah. They just knew where they can hire some 
monkeys <laughs> wanted to use them in some things. They so. just had a surplus of monkeys somewhere that they had to use <laughs> yeah. on the budget. And Joanna worked on Call Me Buona, is that right? Yeah, yeah, she's um, she's part of the script writing team for that. So she's working alongside, or she's credited alongside uh, Bob Hope's kind of experienced screenwriter. So they're kind of working with the Hope persona of the, the coward who's reluctantly pressed into some action situation, which is exactly what happens in, in Call Me Buona. But it's 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 a sort of interesting it's an interesting throwback to her little James Bond parody in, in a way you know it's like this idea of someone who presents as a masculine hero being shown to be a little bit kind of emasculated or um or a bit kind of a kind of boyish and the the women characters in Call Me Buona are much more capable so towering Anita Ekberg is this sort of very capable figure but you know it's it's a repeat of the same dynamic that you get with Jane Russell in uh, Pale Face with Bob Hope so he's always kind of emasculated by these much more forthright women so they do the same joke but with a kind of international intrigue uh, kind of twist in this but it's also got the the interesting appearance of it in from russia with love where the the, the secret passageway is in a big poster for call me Buona with anita ekberg's mouth being kind of yeah. co-opted as a so there's a nice little kind of link between different eon productions even the the non-bond one that, that kind of comes in the middle of those two bond films yeah, it doesn't happen very often throughout the series, does it? It's I'd be interested to see if they could pop some more of those in. Um, <laughs> in, in, the, in hopefully, no time to die's got a couple of references to some of the films. To call me Buona. That would yeah. be nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and Richard Maybaum, um, obviously, we've mentioned his name. He is the credited screenwriter on the two that Joanna worked on, um, and also went on to write many of the the Bond films later on. He claimed authorship of the two films um dr no and and from russia with love um and what did you learn about joanna's reaction to that because obviously we all think of richard maybaum as being this great screenwriter and what have you but um what did she make of 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 that situation well i think she was she was very willing to give people credit for the work that they did. So on From Russia With Love, she said, you know, no, he, he did a lot of the, the like grunt work on that. It's really important in, in developing it. He uh, gets the character of, uh, oh, which, who's the one that does the tech? Q. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> brain freeze then um yeah in kind of you know establishing that character she's more than willing to give due credit to other people i think what's slightly irritating is that courtesy isn't always paid in return so young is dismissive of her saying oh she's just a continuity girl who worked with me before because she'd kind of worked on some of the uh, warwick film productions that been partly filmed in Ireland like the Red Beret so you know she was my script girl she did a bit and she but she wasn't really a script writer and Maybaum's kind of claiming of 
I, I suppose people's memories don't always work accurately or people remember things differently so it may well not be an attempt to steal credit from somebody but just misremembering that maybe it wasn't the whole story that you know everything about it was that person's creation but certainly he he's absolutely crucial to the onward development of the franchise he's he's really important but he's not the only contributor to that so i think it's important that that her work is also included in that mix um and it hasn't always been or it's been kind of conveniently forgotten or or sidelined you know well she got credit but that was just you know a sort of contractual thing or uh, you know that kind of thing rather than actually no she got credit because she did important work on it as well Often it's the case that the narrative, the official narrative of the filmmakers, you know, Eon will have had published lots of books about these things. And if they don't give her the due credit, then people like us who then refer back to them, to the source, then they will be forgotten. It's like um, with No Time to Die, for example, I, the credited writers are Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, Kerry Fukunaga and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I know for certain that there was also Scott Z Burns who did a pass on the script as well. And his contributions, obviously, because of your, you're saying the credit system, his contribution is not even being talked about around No Time to Die, which is really interesting. Um, I think she's just a, a really fascinating story. There wasn't a question there, really. That was just uh, just me to chipping in. Um, I mean, it does make me wonder uh, it, with her sort of subsequent marriage to Rene Clermont because you know you you sometimes wonder about maybe even though she's not credited maybe she's kind of helping him or suggesting things on his film so you know a bit like the kind of Alma and Alfred Hitchcock relationship where she's not always credited but there's very strong evidence that she's a really important part of the creation of the films we call Hitchcock films so I think there's also that added complication of people being in relationships with people and having important input, but then it isn't it isn't credited because it's almost seen as um, part of the relationship, a kind of personal and professional relationship, and the boundaries of that are a bit blurred. So, so I wonder if she did carry on working in film, but just in a kind of covert way instead, and I. I think that goes on quite a lot. So the experience that you, you spoke of in terms of the crediting and, and just the difficulties in, in the industry seemed to sour her view. And was that was that common of, of that sort of era? Um, and is it still, you know, a problem? That's, that's, a really, that's a really interesting question. I mean, she never seems that impressed by... James Bond um you know from writing a story sending it up to when Matthew Field tracks her down years later and interviews so she's got the she's been interviewed for the DVD for Dr No but she and she's got a copy of it but she's not bothered to take it out of the wrapper so when when she talks about it she's not in awe of this amazing film series that that she was a part of so she's not 
kind of hungry to stake a claim and it seems more like she just got disenchanted with with the situation with Saltzman particularly with working with Terence Young who she doesn't seem to have got on with at all um, and there's a sense that there are other opportunities to pursue different professional opportunities different personal opportunities so it makes sense to not carry on flogging a dead horse or maybe to move into helping out but in a freelance way you don't get credit but you might get paid handsomely for doing a bit of script doctoring work um or you might find the world of publishing a bit more amenable for building your career so it is a shame because when she's interviewed in 1966 um she's still talking about you know i want to be a director and that never happens for her and that does feel like a a lost opportunity and it's certainly in doing historical film research when you look at women being interviewed about their careers you see that again and again I would have liked to have done this but there weren't the opportunities or I got to do a little bit of this in in the war because there weren't men around to do it but then as soon as the war was over then I had to go back to doing this job so it's yeah it, it can be a bit dispiriting sometimes seeing the potential of these people not being fulfilled and that's to the to the detriment of um of the films that they that they might have mm. gone on to make and you know thankfully things seem better but they're still a long way from you know the, the parity in terms of gender and all kinds of diversity that we should have well on onto something a little bit more positive in her life, or at least it sounds positive. We were pretty excited to find out that um, she was a neighbour to, to Roger Moore, which seems like a ridiculous um, <laughs> st- um, uh, thing to happen for somebody who'd already worked on the Bond films. Um, and also he was a, a contributor to her sort of pushing her forward and getting her the credits that she deserved, uh, as sounds like a very Roger Moore thing to do. Can you tell us a little bit about that and that relationship? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know too much about uh, the friendship, um, but it's interesting that when he's kind of writing about his his career and his life, that he finds space to to kind of basically say this person was quite important, and she's not got the credit that she deserves for the work that she did in sort of setting up the the bond series um that obviously then he comes into much later on but um i'm assuming there were neighbors in geneva um i think um and certainly as kind of rene clement's wife later widow that i mean there's that kind of incredibly affluent community in in geneva so i i, I assume they were kind of next door neighbours because of that. But it does sound like a sort of sitcom <laughs> waiting to happen, doesn't it? My name, Roger Moore next door or something. <laughs> well, if, if you're ever going to have a neighbour, Roger Moore would be a good one. He definitely come around and help you do some chores around the house and things. Yeah, fabulous, uh, like Stella Street or something yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> in Switzerland. <laughs> well, we, we find this a lot with the when we're talking through the Bond things because we go through quite a lot of detail into all the different editors, actors, and you just find that there's like this... like they're all linked in some way and one's worked on a film with somebody else and then it's it's amazing there's this sort of 
whole I don't know if it's it's the Bond world or it's just the cinema world in general, but it seems very um close knit and people do tend to live next to other people. Um Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of that. It's not it's not just Bond, it's it's uh yeah, kind of these international networks of showbiz folk, yeah. you know, that all end up converging in the same place. It's usually for tax reasons. Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but often, you know, in palatial mansions that are very close to, to film studios as well. So so you do get these interesting connections and interesting friendships as well between kind of sometimes unlikely folk. Yeah, I don't know how, if it's completely true, but there is an amazing story about when David Bowie, you, Roger Moore turned up on David Bowie's door in, in Switzerland and I, I think he came round and, and, and Bowie writes about it or it's the other way around. One of them bored the other to tears with their <laughs> with their anecdotes. <laughs> which, uh, I just love that vision of uh, the two of them together. Um, it's a bit like Alice Cooper and Ronnie Corbett being golf buddies, <laughs> isn't it? You know, and you imagine uh, the... The pair they must have made. Like. Stella Street must have done something with that David yeah. Bowie and Roger Moore. <laughs> they they uh, should meter. have done. If they didn't, it was a, a missed opportunity. Um, just as we wrap things up, did you revisit Doctor No recently ahead of this? And, and what what are your thoughts about the film itself? Uh, is it a film you enjoy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the film. When I was doing the 60s project, I watched an awful lot of kind of 60s films um, in quick succession so I think I got a bit 60s sick in a way but funnily enough my um, my daughter really likes James Bond films uh, Roger Moore is her favourite um, and obviously they're always on ITV3 or ITV whichever ITV channel it was so we went through a phase of kind of watching quite a lot of them um, so I think that's probably the last time I I saw the film I mean there are problems with it um but it 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 clips along it's you know it's got a lot going on and it's nowhere near as gruesome as it might have been for the time in terms of its sexual or racial politics now, i'm not excu- excusing the film because it is still problematic but there are moments where you can really with andres and with, with the introduction of bond and and the you know the they, they really are moments that deserve that much used, overused term iconic. You know, you really do get the sense of, oh, yeah, this is this is going to work. Um, and those moments still resonate, I think. So it's, it's, a, it's a good film in its own right. I think it's still it's still got something that makes it that makes it quite compelling. And, you know, Sean Connery is fabulous in it so it's got it's got a lot going for it even though it's obviously a lot more shaky beneath the surface than it might appear when you watch it yeah I guess for for you as an academic actually the this idea of the films being problematic you're probably a really good person to 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 ask about this and it's like I guess for you you're able to do to see these films within the context of what they are I mean do you think it's important that these films don't get censored for in the future for their, uh, you know, like you say, questionable uh, sexual politics, racial politics, that sort of thing. It's important that we can preserve these sorts of things for, for future people to look back on. Yeah, I mean, I, I really admire what um, TCM are doing at the moment, which is to show classic movies, but to contextualise them. 
and to problematize them and not just you know not just kind of nostalgically wallow or give them a free pass because they were you know their old films but to really examine the fact that people at the time were annoyed by aspects of Gone with the Wind it wasn't like everybody thought that was fine back then so I think making that older content available but contextualizing it and kind of getting people to engage with the difficult things about it I think is is really great I think Talking Pictures UK in uh Talking Pictures TV in in the UK is is great for that as well you know they will show things that are sometimes quite challenging but they will contextualize they will offer content warnings about what you're about to see they're not just uh presenting it unproblematically as absolutely fine so i think there's always that tension with dealing with historical stuff you've got to you've got to handle it very carefully but you don't want it uh kind of completely locked away um in in most cases you want it to be there so people can engage with what's what's good about it why it might have been popular why people took issue with it why it's got problems as well so that's you know that's what I would try and do in in teaching some of those materials as well right let's wrap things up who wants to ask the killer question we're going to put you on the spot now that's Brendan's question yeah he always asks every time go on uh who do you think should be the next Bond and what direction <laughs> should they take with their films? Oh, God. Yep. <laughs> um, we should pre-warn guests about it, should should start we? pre-warning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've really put me on the spot. I think the next James Bond should be Jodie Whittaker. Yeah. And I think maybe they should um, uh, take a sort of time travel tack in the, the next film. I, I really don't know. I mean, I can. Uh, there's obviously a lot of buzz around the guy from Bridgerton who I think would be fantastic kind of embodies lots of the the bond qualities and but i i don't know i don't know you know it's it's interesting isn't it it's like a national sport working out who might be the next one and where they might go next well it'll be it'll be the center of the conversation when this episode comes out after no time to die when everyone's seen the film everyone will just be like and now what's next everyone will be desperate to find out but i think it'll be a while yet um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, it's been really great to have your insight into Joanna Harwood's uh, input. Uh, the, the chapter that we've been referring to, it's her word was her bond, Joanna Harwood, Bond's first woman screenwriter. And where can people read that if they want to? That is in a book called From Blofeld to Moneypenny, Gender in James Bond. And it's edited by Stephen Gerrard, not the footballer, Stephen <laughs> Gerrard, a different one. A different one. And where can people find you if they want to um, speak to you online, maybe on Twitter or? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I am uh, Brit Film Melanie, so completely typecast. And um, I'm on the lovely website of my um university which is the university of east anglia so there's sort of publication stuff and links to some of the stuff that i've written on there but um but yeah i'm, I'm definitely on twitter and i'm mostly friendly <laughs> thank you again um guys if they want to people want to email the show how can they get hold of us 
Podcasts at jamesbond8z.co.uk. And Brendan, you know what's coming next? Yeah, the socials at jamesbond8z, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Well, thank you again, Emily, for joining us. James Bond A to Z will return next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.